and amen. Please be seated, and thank you as always to our worship team for awakening our soul to God's presence because he's here with us this morning, and he has something for us this morning, both in worship and his word. And so I want you to get out two things. I want everybody to get out two things. Number one, let's get out our Bibles, get out your word. We're closing our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians today. Second thing I want everyone to get out is this little guy right here. I want everybody to get out your cell phone. Some of you already have it out. I'm sure that's because your Bible's on it. I'm sure that's why you have it out. But I'm going to ask you to open up a different app, not just your Bible app. I'm going to ask you to click, mine's right here, click on your little calendar app right there. Go ahead, let it pull up. And I know, I know it's like, oh, great, all the things I got to think about tomorrow. I'm trying to ignore those things. If you're like me, on my calendar, I got like a few days showing here, but not too many days. And here's what I'm going to do. On Monday, I'm going to, you know, open my calendar. I'm going to open my phone. I'm going to give it, I might give it like a couple scrolls here. And you, I'm sure you're like me. You got all these different colors. And all, look, there's five things going on at the same time. Awesome. And I'm going to look a few days ahead because I want to be prepared. I want to be ready. And so I'm like, okay, we got something for the kids that night. So I got to be sure, you know, I can leave work. I can get home. I can... Be ready for that. I got this meeting coming up, so I got to do some other stuff on Monday, so I can get ready for the meeting on Thursday. Oh, what's this? I'm going fishing. Oh, I'm for sure going to be ready for that. I'm not going to let work interfere with that. I got to be ready. But y'all, at most, and some of you have a sickness where you do more than this. I live with some of those people. At most, I'll give it a couple scrolls. But y'all, anything after that? There's all kind of stuff after that that I don't want to know about. I don't care about yet. I'm not ready to prepare for that. I'm not ready to think about it. I got too much other stuff to do, right? Maybe some of you aren't like me. I read a quote by Martin Luther this week. Now, now Martin Luther, he didn't have a cell phone. It was still in its early days of development. But if Martin Luther had, had a cell phone, his calendar would be a lot different than ours. So he said this, Martin Luther said this, he said, there's only two days on my calendar. There's this day and there's that day. That's it. And of course, this day, he means this life, this world with its cares, with its concerns, with its worries. That day is capitalized. He's talking about that day that the Lord returns and sin is abolished. The last enemy of death is finally dealt with and we are with Jesus always. Every person here, me included, every single one of us at any given point in time is living for one of those days. This day or that day. And whichever one it is, your hope is in it, you think about it, you plan for it, you get ready for it, you talk about it, and it's an either or. And we, I know we can flip back and forth, but it's either this day or that day. Let's get our bearings a little bit as we're finishing the book of 1 Thessalonians. You probably remember Paul traveled there, not by himself, with Silas. Uh, with Timothy, even probably with Dr. Luke, and they shared the gospel. Man, it caught on fire, and this church grew for about five minutes, and then they all got ran out of town. And so all that's left is a bunch of baby Christians who are saved, they're committed, but man, they're young. And so Paul is writing back to teach them some of the basics, some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so we started off talking, start off the book talking about what, what is a Christian? The fundamentals of that. What is a church? What is this collection of Christians together? 
Then we talked about what does it look like to love one another. But each and every one of these lessons, everything Paul has covered so far, he's woven in one fundamental overarching lesson. And as he closes the book, that's, this is what he puts the spotlight on, is this one foundation that everything else is built on top of. And that lesson is our big idea today. It's this. You are defined by the day you live for. You are defined by the day you live for. Let's read. We're going to read the end of chapter 4 and then the first half of chapter 5. Let's pick it up in 4.13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's what we're going to find out this morning, what it looks like to live for that day. First, the end of chapter 4, he's saying to live for that day is to be hopeful in death. The beginning of chapter 5, we'll find out to live for that day is to be holy in life. Hopeful in death holy in life. Now we can tell from this book several things that they were struggling with, the questions they were asking. And we can tell they're struggling because Jesus went and violated their expectations. All of them expected Jesus to return like the next day, and he hadn't. And so now they have questions. And so some of them, they had sold all their possessions, sold everything they had, like, all right, any minute now, I'm not going to work today. And then a couple days went by, and they're, they got hungry. And they're like, hey, can I like, move in with you, and can you feed me? Because I've I got rid of all my stuff. So Paul writes to him and says, don't be idle. Don't be a burden to other people. That's not what this is about. There's others there that are struggling with suffering, with persecution. They're facing it just like Paul and the gang did while they were there, and they're beginning to lose heart. And they're saying, why, why didn't Jesus just come back and put an end to this? There's one thing that has them reeling more than anything else, and it's the same thing that sends us reeling. They're surprised by death. See, it's been long enough now that some of their friends have died waiting for Jesus to return. And so you can understand the question. I mean, how, how can we have hope while death still reigns? I think we can all identify with them. You know, death is... Death is a strange thing. We all know it is inevitable, but it is also uncertain, isn't it? I mean, we all know it bats a thousand. It's going to get every single one of us, but we never know when or how or exactly who. And so how do we cope with that? In fact, psychologists will tell you almost everything we do is to find a way to cope with this inevitable but uncertain reality of death. Do we ignore it, bury our head in the sand? Do we live in despair? Do we fear it? Do we turn into some kind of stoics? Nothing bothers us. 
I want, I want us to notice what, what Paul did, how Paul is going to help them cope with it, help them have hope in the midst of death. See, he doesn't write them a, you know, a card. He doesn't give them some candy to make them feel better. He doesn't give them some rousing rah-rah speech. You know what he gives them? Theology. Theology. He says, what you know about who God is and what he is doing, that is the seedbed of your hope. Hope is built on a foundation of truth. And so he says, let me remind you about who God is and what he's done. As you do, you'll be encouraged. And so he ends chapter 4, and he ends the next section in chapter 5 with the same words. Encourage one another with these words. That's how he closes both sections. This theology will encourage you. As you remind one another who God is and what he is doing, you'll find your hope. That's where you'll find your hope. In verse 13, he uses this analogy of sleep, talking about death. Now, he's not being literal, okay? This isn't like they're dead, okay? This isn't like the Princess Bride where they're mostly dead and Billy Crystal can pump some air into their lungs and they're fine again. They are, not a lot of y'all have seen the Princess Bride, apparently. They are all the way stinky dead, okay? These Thessalonians, they thought Jesus would come back while they were still alive, and he hasn't. Death, death seems to be just running amok, running free. And so essentially their question is, okay, what's going to happen to the dead? Essentially their question is, can death rob us of God's promises? Is death more powerful than Jesus? And so Paul answers them with this analogy of sleep. So why does he use sleep? Because sleep is temporary. When I, every night when I go to put my kids down for bed, I do not say goodbye, I say goodnight. Because I know we're going to see each other in the morning. And in a similar way, in a lot of ways, it is the same for believers who have died. It is a lot more like saying goodnight than it is saying goodbye. Now, it may be a long night, it might be a hard night, but when that day comes, the night's over. And you may say, I know, I'm, you are right to be skeptical if you are. You say, everybody dies. None of us have ever seen somebody rise from the dead. How can you say that? How can you know that? Verse 14, theology. What you know to be true about God and what he's doing. That's how you can know. He says, you know that Jesus himself died and rose again. And so that totally flips upside down your view of death. And he says this theology, in verse 15, he says this theology, knowing who God is, knowing what Jesus has done, it can change how you grieve. Now, notice he says, we'll still grieve. Grief is still very real, very normal, even beneficial and good in some way. It's not wrong. We just grieve differently. And I'm old enough now. I'm not near as old as some of y'all, but I'm old enough I've been to quite a few funerals and different funerals. I've been to funerals where people are grieving very differently, and you can see it on people's faces. There is a grief without hope, and that is confused. It is full of despair, but there's also grief with, with hope. And there's, there, listen, there's just as many tears, just as much sadness, but there's also a, a comfort, even a confidence even a celebration of the life that we had. There's an 
old minister in Philadelphia, a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse. He, I think he explained this as good as anyone could have. He was trying to explain to his kids death. And they had just lost someone close to them. And so he, he was with them and he said, okay, you see that truck, kids? Yes, yes, Dad, we see that truck. Okay, you see the shadow next to the truck? Yes, Dad, we see the shadow. Let me ask you, would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow? Well, the shadow, Dad, of course. He says, because Jesus was hit with the truck of death, we only get the shadow. For the Christian, hope walks side by side, hand in hand with grief because of Jesus. It's temporary And we know it's temporary because Christ himself died and rose again and will return on that day. Speaking of that day, Paul then, this is the part we really perk up. Paul then tells them more, gives them some more information about that day, the day of Christ's return. So verse 15, he kind of appeases their concerns. No, those who have already died, they're not going to be left out. They didn't miss anything because with that day comes resurrection. All those who have already died will Rise up out of the grave. And he says, it is promised by a word of the Lord. You don't have to take my word for it or Timothy's or Silas or even Dr. Luke. This came from Jesus himself. And the key verse is a key verse when we talk about the second coming of Christ. Verse 16. He says, on that day when Jesus returns, there will be two things. There will be resurrection and there will also be reunion. He says it's going to be loud. Three sounds, cry of command, voice of the archangel, sound of a trumpet. And so here we go. This is one of these things that, y'all, there are books and books and books and books written. Okay, what is each one? What do they mean? Is this one event? Is this three events? Is this immediate? Spread out over time. What is it? You know, who is the archangel? Doesn't matter. None of that matters. None of that is the point. All of these are Old Testament language for the Lord acting and intervening directly and powerfully in human history, in space, in time. And so when any of those things happened in the Old Testament, you knew God was about to do something unusual and powerful right in front of your eyes. And so when all three are together, stuff's going down, y'all. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus, he will come personally, literally, visibly, and unmistakably. It's not, you know, figurative. You're not going to have to wonder, was that, was that what happened yesterday? I thought I heard a little sound maybe. No, 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 no. It will be powerful and unmistakable. He says the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, he's not talking about the frozen chosen Presbyterians there, okay? Dead in Christ, okay. A little Presbyterian humor. People love that. I used to be Presbyterian for a little bit. No, I'm not throwing shade. He's talking about those who have literally died before. They will be resurrected. But then notice, it's not just about resurrection. It's also about reunion. Verse 17, he says, when that happens, we are reunited with those we have lost and with the Lord, with Jesus himself. And notice, from that day forward, how long will we be with Jesus? Always. Always. Never separated again. We will be reunited with him, and that is our new permanent reality. And verse 17 is also, that word caught up is what most translations use. That's the word we get for rapture. The Greek word is harpazo. It means to seize or grab or take away. 
And this is a key verse when we talk about what we call eschatology, study of end times. How is this all going to go down at the end, okay? So some, there's all kind of different explanations for verse 17. There's really four main categories, but within each category, there's 100 subcategories, y'all. We can, end, we can argue about every little detail about this, and many have for a long period of time. So there's the post-tribulation view that says, okay, this rapture is going to happen after what we call the tribulation. Seven years of suffering that this, unlike what this world has ever known. And after those seven years, believers, those who have died and are alive are raptured or caught up into heaven. There's the mid-tribulation view that says, okay, halfway through that tribulation, three and a half years, rapture happens, we go up, okay? There's the the pre-tribulation rapture, which gets my vote. But before all that tribulation happens, all that bad suffering, all the Christians are caught up. And then there's what we call the amillennial view that pretty much says, y'all, we ain't going anywhere, okay? There will be a resurrection for sure, but when that happens, the dead will rise as Jesus comes down and we all stay in the, in the new earth. And so that part about we go meet, uh, meet the Lord in the clouds, they'll say, well, back then when a king was coming, when he was approaching a city, you didn't just sit on your couch and wait for him to come to you. You went outside the city, greeted him, and then escorted him back in the city. And so they're saying that's what's happening here. Okay. Now, I went to seminary. People argue about this over and over and over again. I'm tired of the arguments, so let's settle this right here. Okay. Y'all ready? About to lose about three-fourths of the church here. Okay. <laughs> if you subscribe to a post-tribulation view, you are what we call a Christian. If you subscribe to the mid-tribulation view, you are what we call a Christian. And if you subscribe to the pre-trib view or the amillennial view, you are what we call a Christian. You can hold any of those views, and you are in orthodoxy. There is scriptural support for your view, and frankly, there are some scriptures that are going to be problematic for you to explain. Any of those views. Here's what's more important, okay? One day we'll find out which one is right, you know, and you'll be like, ha-ha, nanny-nay-boo-boo, I was right, you were wrong. (laughs) Here's what I want you to know this morning. You can guess right and totally miss the point totally missed the point for why Paul is writing this to this church in Thessalonica. Listen, in this moment, Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians, oh, hold on, I made a chart about this. Let me pull out my chart and let's argue about it and let's split the church over it. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, is what he says. Therefore, encourage one another with these words doesn't mean shouting matches about sequences and timing. It reminds, it means remind the people who are struggling what their future history is. Give them hope. Encourage one another to live for that day, not this day. The point of the passage is to comfort and encourage people who are grieving and questioning in the face of death. The emphasis of this section is in his words. We will always be with the Lord. It's about reunion. And this is God's word of encouragement for you today. Listen, God's blessings for you this day. Don't compare to what they'll be like in that day. You will not experience your full salvation, your full glorification. You won't experience it this day. You'll experience it that day. 
no matter how much you've experienced of Christ personally on this day, it doesn't hold a candle what you'll experience that day when we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let your life be defined by the day you live for. And let's make it that day, not this day. So to live for that day is to be hopeful in death. Next, it's to be holy in life. Let's move to chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. To live for that day is to be holy in this life. Now, what he says in verse one is totally counterintuitive to me. It is not uh, what I would have wanted. He says, okay, details, talking about details, time, date, places. You don't need me to tell you any of that, to which I'd be like, no, I really do. Can we keep talking? Let's keep talking here. See, like us, the Thessalonians thought they needed information, dates, times, at least some signs. Why? So I can put it on my calendar. So I can be ready for it when it comes. So I can be scrolling on a Monday. I can be like, oh, that's a couple weeks from now. I better start getting ready for it. You know, Jesus' disciples said the same things. Matthew 24, they said, all right, Jesus, tell us when. Tell us when it's going to happen. Verse 36, Jesus said, but, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Well, that's a frustrating answer, isn't it? <laughs> Look at what he says next, starting in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day the Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the constant theme of all of Scripture. Anytime people want more details, the Scriptures stay intentionally vague. Why? Well, think about what we would do with that information. We would put it on our calendar, treat it like all those other events that I don't have to think about right now. In fact, I was thinking about this week. That would lead to a scenario where like my haircut on next Tuesday would have a greater impact on my life today than the Lord's second coming. Jesus knows we have this, this gnawing need for immediacy. But now, can I get it now? Let's talk about what's now, what's right in front of my face. And apparently these details would distract us from that day and pull our attention to this day. 
It will let us to be defined by this day instead of that day. And so Jesus said, when it comes to my return, you don't get ready, you live ready. You're always ready. You let every second of your life be defined by that day. And Paul here gives us two analogies, and Jesus even gave us one of the same analogies of what it's like for us. A thief breaking in in the middle of the night and stealing your stuff and going into labor. Now, both of those are kind of different ways of communicating two ideas. It will be unexpected. You won't know. You don't know when that thief is coming to break in your house, okay? But it's also inescapable. It's unexpected, and it is inescapable. Once it starts, there's no turning back. So think about a woman going into labor. You're not in control of when that's going to start. You don't know when that's going to start. But, buddy, once it starts, there's no turning back, is there? You know, I thought it's made me think about I'm like, Paul, this is such a great analogy. It made me think about last time my wife went into labor, you know? And I've never been so surprised by something I was so prepared for. <laughs> I mean... We, uh, clearly, we got a calendar. We know when this is around when this is supposed to be coming. We've packed a bag. We know where to go. We've made phone calls and arrangements for other kids and the whole deal. And yet, it caught us totally off guard. I'd gone out of town. I got back like 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, okay, no big deal. And there's a little bit of denial going on. Okay. When I get home, my wife's still awake, you know, because she's having pains. And I, oh, I wonder, you know, nine months into pregnancy, I wonder what these pains at regular intervals could be. I don't drink some water. I don't know. Then once we finally did the math, panic, right? Like, oh, 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 why are all the cars going? Who moved the hospital 40 miles farther away than it was yesterday? How, how could I have expected something so much? I packed a bag for it yet be so surprised by it. But that's what that day will be like. It will be sudden. It will be unescapable. And all of us, he sorts all of us, verse 6 through 11, he sorts all of us into only two categories when it comes to that day. Some will be spiritually alert. And so he uses the analogies of you're awake, you're sober, you're ready. You're living ready for that day. Many will be, have a spiritual stupor. You're asleep. You're drunk. Think about someone who's drunk. They're, they can't see straight. They are unaware and unreactive to the world around them. That's what he's saying. You, you are unaware and unreactive to the spiritual realities that are certain and inescapable. So how do we live as spiritually alert? Well, he gives us another image. A soldier who is prepared for battle. He says, like a soldier putting on our armor every day, we put on faith, love, and hope. Over spring break, we went and, visit, went and visited the state capitol in Austin. Yeehaw, go Texas, all right? We learned all about the Texas history and, and how Texas won its independence by fighting off the Mexican army in Santa Ana. And at one point, they, taught, they told us about that battle, the battle where we finally defeated Santa Ana and how that happened. And the Mexican army, they got there first. They were on the battlefield, and y'all, they were ready. They got up before the sun came up. They got in formation. They got their weapons. They're ready because they know those Texans are showing up today. We get there in early morning, no Texans. Okay, they still, they stay in formation. They stay ready. A couple hours go by, no Texans. A couple out, more hours go by, no Texans. 
Then they figure it's siesta time. They're in afternoon by now. Those Texans clearly aren't coming today. So they set down their weapons. They get rid of their weapons. They get out some food. They gather around the campfire. They go back to their tents. And guess what happens right then? Here come those Texans. And they wiped out the army in a matter of minutes. A good soldier always stays ready. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying we live for that day by being holy and rife right now. We are always diligent with our faith, with our love, with our hope, because we know that day is coming. And, you know, if you notice those things, faith, love, and hope, they only come when your life is defined by something greater than your current circumstances right now. Something greater than your constant gnawing need for something immediate. Listen, the only way you will love your enemies is if you're living for that day. The only way you can face death with hope is if you're living for that day. The only day you can live with faith and trust and dependence on God is if you're living for that day. And you may be thinking, kind of like back in chapter 4, talking about all of us, rising up out of the grave. You know, How can I know this? How can you know that's true? Again, theology. What you believe about God and what he is, who he is and what he is doing. And so he says in verse 10, listen, you can know this because God died for you. And because you know he died for you, you know you can live with him. This is why death doesn't have the final say. Because he died, you get to live with him. Because he took the truck, you only get the shadow. Truth is the foundation for your hope. So, what about you this morning? You are defined by the day you live for. So let me ask you, are you living for this day or that day? Let's do this. Everybody get back out your calendar. Let's pull these back out. I'm going to open mine again. Get rid of all these advertisement notifications. Give it a few scrolls, maybe more than we normally do. And I'm telling you guys, this, this will be maybe the most spiritual exercise you ever do. Just stop somewhere. Look, look at what all's on there. You know, I hope yours isn't as multicolored as mine is. Most of the stuff on there, if you had to categorize it as one or the other, this for, is it for this day or that day? How would you categorize it? If you had to say these things, are they helping you be spiritually awake or are they putting you spiritually asleep? Where would most of them go? I got to tell you, that's a question I didn't really want to answer for myself. All right, we can put our calendars away. You're welcome, Karen. You know, I found myself asking this week, you know, is it, is it possible that most of the things I seek after the most, comfort, ease, success, wealth, even happiness, they're actually making you spiritually numb, not awake. They're making you focus on this day, not that day. They are making you drunk on this world, unaware and unreactive toward the bigger picture of what God's doing. And at the same time, is it possible that many of the things we try to avoid and we try to fix, things like pain, discomfort, loneliness, hardship, grief, 
man, is it possible that those are the things God is using to keep you awake and aware of that day? You know, it's these things that maybe God's using them to, to remind you that this world is not my home. I'm just a stranger and an alien here. And they're awakening in your heart a desire to say, I can't live for this day. This day has nothing compared to that day. I want that day. You know, Paul mentions grief in particular here. Think about what is, what is grief? Grief. Grief is a yearning for something better. It's a love and a longing. It reminds us that death is the enemy. We weren't created for it. We were created for Eden to be in perfect relationship with each other and with God, free of sin, free of brokenness, and free of death. Grief reminds us of that. So listen, you, you may never be more spiritually awake than when you're walking through grief. You may never be more able to live for that day than when you're walking through grief. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Problem of Pain. He said this. He said, God, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So how does God move us from drunk to sober spiritually? Often through pain. So maybe these things remind us we desperately need the Lord to come back. Maybe your struggles aren't something to fix this day. They are God's megaphone telling you to live for that day. Keep awake, keep alert until he returns. The end of First Thessalonians, it reminded me of a, a book my wife read recently and told me about it. And it's on my reading list and I'll read it one day. <laughs> it's a long list right now. It's a book called Everything Sad is Untrue, which is a quote taken from J.R.R. Tolkien's books. And it's a true story of this guy, Daniel Nayeri. He grew up in Iran. As he moved here as a refugee with his family. When he was 10 years old in Iran, his family was very wealthy. They, they went around in influential circles until his mom, his mom went and did the one thing that would ruin all that. She became a Christian. She put her faith that Jesus died for her so she can live with him forever. So they lost everything. I mean, that was inevitable. That was what happened. This is, what she did was illegal there. But then she started getting interrogated by the secret police. The Ayatollah put a fatwa on her, his mom. And so in the middle of the night, they bribe their way out of the country and they flee. And in this family, they used to have everything. They end up in a refugee camp in Italy. It was miserable. I mean, it was. He talks about how so many lost hope. They got stuck. They spent the rest of their lives in despair. But not his mom. This, this author, you know, he's an adult now, and he marvels at how his mom kept hope in hard times. He writes this. I don't know how my mom was so unstoppable despite all the stuff happening. I don't know. Maybe it's anticipation, hope. The anticipation that 
the God who listens in love will one day speak justice. The hope that some final fantasy will come to pass and will make everything sad, untrue, unpainful. If you have that, maybe you keep moving forward. Imagine, imagine you're in a refugee camp and you know it'll be a year or more before anything happens. It's going to be a tough year. But for the person who thinks at the end of this year, I'm going somewhere to be free, a place without secret police, free to believe whatever I want and teach my children. And you believe it'll be hard, but eventually you'll build a whole new life. Well, that's like winning the lottery. It's like saying you'll get $100 million at the end of that year. But if you're thinking every place is the same, there will always be people who abuse you and about how poor you'll be, the sadness takes over. Here's the thing. You'll both have the same year at the refugee camp. But one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you can do to prepare your kids for the new world. And one of you will be slumped in the courtyard, surrendered to the idea it's all one long river of blood. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. That's how she did it. Your 